0: Look, I'll be real with you, RCR Stories is an exercise in Monday morning quarterbacking. In a general sense, I don't do many recent stories because oftentimes those stories don't really have conclusions, which would prevent me from being able to really comment on them in any sort of insightful way since, well, things are still in motion. This is not to say I've never done an RCR Story which lacked formal closure. But for the most part, there's a beginning and a middle, coupled with an ending that gives a clear indication of where the story goes once I stop covering it. The Chrysler merger was a disaster, and so was Cash for Clunkers, but the stories themselves were cautionary tales for regulatory incompetence. Cash for Clunkers reshaped the auto industry into the 2010s, and the death of Pontiac sparked debate over whether the brands GM chose to save were any more viable than the ones they killed. And no, we never found James Dean's Porsche 550 Spider, and I have no idea whatever happened to Liz Carmichael. But those were complete stories detailing a rise and a fall, suggesting there was nowhere else for the figures involved to go. One because of an untimely death, and another because of financial ruin. The death of Mickey Thompson still has unanswered questions, but a man was convicted of his murder while Thompson's legacy lives on through his son Danny, and his personal brand and the accomplishments of a life well-lived. And Lee Iacocca's RCR story was more of a look into the life of a man who never stopped believing the auto industry could be better, even after he was no longer really a part of it. It's not always ideal, but at least I feel like I'm not leaving you hanging, even if you can't really call some of these endings closure but current events are very much in flux. Even when years have passed, there's a certain recency bias to how a story gets told when it hasn't been that long. This brings me to a bit of a conundrum. How do you cover a story like Dieselgate when the entire tale is yet to be told? This is an RCR story I've been wanting to do since I first started doing these years ago. Every time I told myself, Dieselgate's coming next, gotta do Dieselgate. Yet, like covering the Arab oil crisis, the idea of tackling all the socio-political implications involved sounds so far above my pay grade that I'd need to take Dramamine to keep from getting sick. I still don't think I could ever really do the Arab oil crisis justice as a result. But with Dieselgate, the story always felt more accessible, yet I kept thinking, nah, it's better to wait until more information comes out. One month became two, two became six, six became a year, a year became three. Well, technically four. Either way, here we are. And frankly, I'm done waiting. So how do you tell a story about an emissions debacle that ranks among the most infamous automotive scandals in history? A story that's still in motion even as I speak right now. Well, if you're listening to this, it must mean I finished telling it. This is RCR Stories' Dieselgate, the Volkswagen Emissions Scandal. What is Dieselgate? Well, it's the term given to the scandal surrounding Volkswagen's attempts to cheat emissions tests in the wake of tightening environmental restrictions over the amount of nitrogen oxide a car could produce. So let's go back a bit, but not too far. When the EPA announced they would be altering emission standards in the United States, it caused automakers to take notice. The new regulations would restrict the amount of nitrogen oxide that could legally be produced by a given vehicle, with the plan being to limit diesel emissions over time. The plan was announced in 1999, but the law didn't actually go into effect until over ten years later, almost concurrently with Cash for Clunkers as 2009 proved to be a divisive period in American automotive history. Once the law went into action, so did Volkswagen. Basically, the German automakers' cars were somehow passing regulatory testing, despite no evidence that they'd changed all that much during the manufacturing process. It seemed unlikely that this could be the case since, like the construction of the second Death Star, auto manufacturers were doubling their efforts to make certain they were in compliance, at significant cost to their bottom line. Since none of this would be cheap to do, especially if any vehicles had to be reworked to comply with the new law. Could it be that Volkswagen was always in compliance and the testing results reflected the naturally low emissions of Volkswagen cars? Mm, No. VW was fitting their vehicles with DEFEAT devices that would allow them to pass regulatory testing. These devices activated emissions controls during the tests that would essentially mask the real nitrogen oxide output of each vehicle. Although calling them defeat devices is a bit of a misnomer, since there was no observable hardware that specifically allowed the cars to cheat emissions. Rather, it was a change in software code that allowed a car to distinguish between lab testing conditions and real-world driving, and adjust its emissions output accordingly. So, in reality, not only was VW completely in violation of the law, but their vehicles were producing as much as 40 times the amount of nitrogen oxide, according to a report by the EPA titled, Learn About Volkswagen Violations. Specifically, Volkswagen violated the Clean Air Act, a federal law first mandated in 1963, with the goal of controlling air pollution and improving air quality through regulation. According to the EPA's report, Volkswagen faced allegations that they, quote, "...violated the Clean Air Act by the sale of approximately 590,000 model year 2009-2016 to 2016 diesel motor vehicles," end quote, "...that also utilized these defeat devices and, as a result, created significant excess air pollution, in this case, oxides of nitrogen." Okay, so Volkswagen did something wrong and got away with it for far longer than they ever should have. That much is clear. But who cracked the case and brought the cheating scandal to light? As it turns out, it was a group that hadn't set out to uncover a scandal. They were just doing research. Yep, it was academics. Because who else, you know? It was 2013, and the International Council on Clean Transportation, or the ICCT, hired a team to record emissions output. This team was comprised of academics from West Virginia University, including Dan Carter, the director of WVU's Center for Alternative Fuels, Engines, and Emissions, Professors Gregory Thompson and Arvind Thiruvengadam, and students Mark Besch and Hemant Kapana. At the time, none of these men realized just the magnitude of what they'd signed up for. As Thiruvengadam told NPR in 2015, quote, Our happiness was Wow, we're going to be the first guys to test diesel cars on the road. And then after that, when we were getting the data, we were like, Okay, we're going to write a lot of journal papers, and we'll be happy if three people read these journal papers. That's our happiness at that point. End quote. But the situation ballooned far beyond what anybody expected. And it wouldn't have gotten to this point had the West Virginia University team not won the contract from the ICCT in the first place. According to Philip M. Key's article for Spiegel International, titled The Three Students Who Uncovered Dieselgate, one of the benefits this team had that other researchers lacked was the presence of portable measuring equipment, which was produced entirely in-house. This gave the West Virginia University team the freedom to measure emissions in longer driving conditions, out in the real world, rather than in a laboratory setting. Although the team expected their budget of $200,000 to be met— The ICCT only gave them $70,000 to work with, with the goal being to test three or four diesel cars. To find cars for their study, the team utilized their connections with the California Air Resources Board, or CARB for short, and made inroads with car rental companies offering more environmentally safe options. So they rented a Volkswagen Jetta 2.0 TDI with a Knox Trap. A VW Passat 2.0 TDI with the selective catalytic reduction system, and a BMW X5 3.0 diesel, and I figured now would be as good a place as any to explain how the NOx trap and the selective catalytic reduction systems work. And this is essentially how Besh, Kapana, and Dirovengadam explained it. You see, with the selective catalytic reduction system, urea fluid is combined with exhaust fumes, and that allows uh, the NOx to be broken down into oxygen and nitrogen, the latter of which would be relatively harmless. But the bad part of this is that the cars would then need to be equipped with this tank specifically for the urea solution, which would be called an ad blue tank. Which is fine, except that it takes up a bunch of space and you got to refill it every couple thousand miles. It's a pretty big added expense. The Nox trap, meanwhile, or an adsorber, as some call it, it essentially binds the Nox during the operation of the engine. And when saturation capacity is reached for the adsorber, diesel fuel is injected in order to purge it, as the Spiegel International article explains it. The goal being that the NOx is then made to desorb into nitrogen. Now, the negative with this part is that the technology really only works at high temperatures, and it also deals with a high fuel consumption. So you've essentially got this machine that is not as effective as the selective catalytic reduction, but the positive is that you don't need to get this AdBlue tank in order to use it, so it's also cheaper, in a way. And from here, this is where we get to the troubling on-the-road testing. From M. Key's article, quote, The emissions measuring device consumed a lot of electricity, but connecting them to the car's own power supply would have interfered with the readings. There were battery-powered devices, but they tended to run out of juice after just an hour. The students went to a hardware store and bought gasoline generators, which they screwed onto particle board panels in the backs of the cars. They channeled the generator exhaust through a tube out of the car window. It was now impossible to hold a conversation inside the car because it was too loud, and the generators had to be refilled constantly. With the back seat of the car stuffed with measuring devices, one of the students sat in the passenger seat with a laptop, and another drove. End quote. So here you sort of see the problems that the team faced with the respective measuring systems that they chose to use. You see, you have the selective catalytic reduction system, which is good, but it requires this big tank. And then you have the Nox trap, which doesn't require the tank, but it's Pretty thirsty, you know what I mean? A September 24, 2015 report by City Lab titled The Study That Brought Down Volkswagen elaborated further on how the tests were run. Quote, the cars were warmed up before each test, which is important because it's normal for a vehicle to spew higher NOx emissions when the engine first gets going. They were also relatively new none exceeding 16,000 miles, meaning there's no reason to think the emissions filters would have deteriorated from age, end quote. That is how they measured the vehicles in the study. But what did they ultimately find? Well, as City Labs' report said, quote, VW failed spectacularly. Nox emissions for vehicle A, the Jetta, were 15 to 35 times higher than the EPA standards, and those for vehicle B, the Passat were 5 to 20 times higher. End quote. The BMW X5 had performed as anticipated by the team, but the Passat was so wildly off-base that they saw more red flags than the Danish raised during the Olympic Parade of Nations. What had seemed like a foolproof strategy for cutting corners and evading the long, salad fingers of the law had become a scandal the size of whatever we're canceling a celebrity for this week. Although the men knew that defeat devices were a thing, they hadn't considered the possibility that a major auto manufacturer would actually utilize this type of software to beat the emissions tests. But they eventually completed their 117-page report, titled, In-Use Emissions Testing of Light-Duty Diesel Vehicles in the United States. Finally, the team was ready to report their findings. But was the automotive world really ready to hear them? Well... Yes and no. Let's do a little time travel. You could pick any number of starting points for the Dieselgate Saga, but I'm deciding to zero in on a man we lost fairly recently as of this video's publication. Ferdinand Piech, an automotive legend who only just passed away on August 25th, 2019. Piech was a man whose name carried with it not only the magnitude of his bloodline, but also a reputation for stern governance and a no-room-for-failure mentality. Born April 17, 1937, Piech was the grandson of Ferdinand Porsche by way of Porsche's daughter, Louise. Piech somewhat modeled himself after his grandfather, the man responsible for co-founding Volkswagen and creating the VW Beetle. Like his namesake... Piech wished to be a businessman in the automotive industry, but also much more. His career would later suggest the lengths to which he had to go, in order to not only innovate, but to sharpen the bottom line of the family business, even if it meant fracturing those very familial connections. But it makes a cold sort of sense that Piech turned out the way he did when you consider his upbringing. Ferdinand Piech's father, Anton, was a lawyer and eventual manager of Volkswagenwerk GmbH during World War II. The wartime factory was supposedly a Dickensian hellhole for political prisoners and forced laborers from Poland, Belgium, Italy, and other countries to say nothing of the concentration camp prisoners who were also put to work in service of the German war effort. Much of this is detailed in a 1996 book by Hans Mommsen and Manfred Greiger titled... The Volkswagen Factory and its workers in the Third Reich, in which we learn that not only were pregnant women forced to work in the factory, but mothers were forced back to work just two weeks or less after giving birth in the camp. Separated from their parents and placed in an orphanage ill-equipped to care for them, no fewer than 350 children died during this war-torn period. Yet, in his youth, Pierre didn't seem to grasp the horrific conditions surrounding the family business, at least according to his autobiography. In fact, the warm memories he recalls would suggest he was all but oblivious. And I get it. He was a child. His focus was less on the people and more on the machines, it would seem, as his autobiography suggested that the memories forged in that horrible factory would compel him to want to get into engineering in the first place. Hanging around the machines, surveying the factory, spending time in a place of productive commotion, riding the trains responsible for transporting production materials for weapons, it inspired in Ferdinand the desire to be more hands-on than his father, as he would later tell his dad that he wished to work in the factory rather than in some dreary office. An excellent profile on the Porsche and Piech families from Spiegel International titled The Porsche Story, A Fierce Family Feud, by Dietmar Haaronek, details some of the issues that separated the blue-collar Piech family from the more privileged Porsche clan. For instance, Piech had a boarding school upbringing intended to toughen him up, as he would learn a lesson through his social and academic struggles that would carry over into his time in the auto industry. Namely, as Piech himself put it, quote, an extremely strong mistrust of others, end quote, and the recognition that certain things, quote, can only be achieved by doing them yourself, because you can't rely on others, end quote. That is in comparison to the Porsche cousins, who attended Waldorf schools, where their education focused on the principles of anthroposophy, developed by Austrian philosopher Rudolf Steiner. Long story short, it basically amounted to Well, how do I explain it? I guess the quickest way to put it is that it was an appeal to spiritually guided rational thought, without a dependence on any specific authority. But I've read several different definitions, and I'm still not entirely sure I understand it. So I'll just use the definition a member of the Piech family used when making fun of his or her Portia relatives, that their education consisted of, and I quote, crafts, crocheting, and singing. To say Piech had a certain bitterness to his educational upbringing would be understating it, as he would later write, quote, I grew up as a domestic pig and was forced to live as a wild boar, end quote. Compounding his harsh academic experience, Piech lost his father as well. Anton Piech passed away in 1952, when Ferdinand was just 15 years old. So yeah, not a great adolescence. By adulthood, Ferdinand Piech seemed intent on moving past the dark legacy of the previous generation. He earned his degree in mechanical engineering in Zurich, Switzerland, on the strength of his thesis on the evolution and operation of Formula One engines. Keep in mind, Piech was a whip-smart dude, completing his master's program at the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology, and he eventually became focused on designing Porsche's 16-cylinder Can-Am 917 engine, because if you're going to get out from under your family's shadow, it's either go big or go home. Pierre worked at the Porsche headquarters in Stuttgart, Germany, from 1963 to 1971, having a hand in the development of everything from the Porsche 906 to the later 917, the former a street-legal race car, and the latter a Can-Am sports car that eventually kept its flat-12 engine after Piech's flat-16 didn't work out according to a profile in the German car magazine Auto, Motor und Sport. The man was a hard-ass, willing to fire anybody for any of a number of reasons, to the point where people were on edge over the possibility of losing their jobs. Former Chrysler CEO Bob Lutz recalled Piech telling him that if he wanted superior panel fits on his cars, he should threaten to fire everyone involved in body precision if they couldn't get body gaps down to 3 millimeters in 6 weeks. Yet Piech was admired for his determination and engineering acumen, so much so that when his 40th birthday came around, a ball was held in his honor. The ball attracted luminaries of the automotive world, including Ital Design's Giorgetto Gugiaro, who not only designed some of the most iconic cars ever made in the form of the BMW M1, Lotus Esprit S1, the DeLorean, and the Volkswagen Golf Mark I, but he also designed Nikon camera bodies, Apple computer prototypes, and even a new pasta shape. Calling the man prolific would be coming up short. That's all just to give some idea of how important Piech truly was. Of course, Piech was born into this business, so you could argue he had a leg up over his contemporaries. But it's not as if Piech had no agency in his decision to pursue automotive engineering. Like the old saying goes, The most important day of your life is the day you're born, and the second most important is the day you find out why. If I had to guess... I would argue that second day came earlier for Piech than most. However, being in the family business is far from a guarantee of familial harmony. There was a lot of infighting, particularly with regards to Piech's mother, Louise Portia, and his uncle, Fairy Portia. The family frequently butt heads on the direction the company was to take, among more personal squabbles detailed at length by Dietmar Haarenek's aforementioned 2009 profile on the porsche Piech feud. Piech was willing to die on the hill of the Porsche 917 race car, even though development would cost a small fortune. But not everyone in the family agreed. Some viewed Ferdinand Piech as being too wasteful with the company finances, putting his desire to create attractive, high-performance cars ahead of financial bottom lines. In a sense, it's a valid concern if you can't guarantee that these high-cost cars are going to make back the money spent to produce them. Then again, that's always the case with industry. You can make forecasts and projections, but you can never really know for sure until the product is out there. But the Porsche side of the family was bristling against even giving Ferdinand Piech any chance, and the reasons went beyond business. You see... Piech generally didn't get along with his cousin, Wolfgang Porsche, who used to tease the entire Piech side of the family for having not inherited the Porsche surname, declaring them, quote, non-name bearers and implying a sort of unworthiness to the legacy of Ferdinand Porsche. But the differing opinions on how the company should spend money led to, well, let's say, spirited disagreement. So much so that Fairy Portia had the entire family participate in group therapy at their old home in Austria, hoping that the reminder of the home they shared during World War II would spark some form of kinship. However, the opposite happened, as memories of wartime tend to do. The article details the fallout of the family reunion. As Horanek writes, We quarreled terribly, says Ferdinand Piech. The family decided that none of its members would work at Porsche in the future, and that outside managers would run the company. Since then, most of the family members have only played within the auto industry the role of relatively invisible Porsche owners, but no longer as active managers. However, for Ferdinand Piech, the changes jump-started his career, which first led to the top post at Audi, and then to the chairmanship of the VW Group. End quote. Now, part of what makes the family drama sound so complicated is the sheer number of Ferdinands on the Porsche side, all of whom played a significant role in the Porsche and Volkswagen companies. Wolfgang's eldest brother, Ferdinand Butsy Porsche III, for example, designed the 911. If you look at the Porsche family tree, it's Ferdinand's all the way down. Even Buttsy's son is a Ferdinand. It's why I'm not surprised Wolfgang's father decided to go by Ferry, or why Ferry's son decided to go by Butsy. Buttsy? And why I wouldn't have blamed Piech for going by Nando or some other nickname, or maybe even his middle name of Carl. Just shake up the name, you know? But I digress. Most family members largely bowed out of the family company's daily business. For example... Wolfgang Porsche remains a shareholder and chairman of the supervisory board of both Porsche Automobile Holding SE and Porsche AG to this very day, but the day-to-day operations were handled by outside managers. The company very much remained a family business in spite of the squabbles. However, the disagreement boosted Piech's career far more than the Porsche side of the family probably could have expected. Which, I mean, fine. Maybe you don't like the guy, but as long as he's getting business done, everything should work out, right? (sighs) not so much. The family issues only worsened as the years wore on, and Piech wasn't exactly innocent in this. You see, Piech was something of a ladies' man, having twelve children by four different women. No judgment, of course, you can't really help who you fall for. But what complicated things was the affair that developed in 1972 as Piech fell in love with Marlene Portia the wife of his cousin Gerhard Portia, the second son of Fairy Portia, as well as Wolfgang's second eldest brother. Now look, it's bad enough to have an affair with anybody's wife, much less your cousin's, but it's several thousand times worse when the affair happens in the midst of a cold war for control of the family businesses. You see, Ferdinand Porsche had split his estate equally between the Piech and Porsche sides of the family, not just splitting the company and dealership network among his own children, but giving shares to his grandchildren as well. However, when Marlene decided to divorce Gerhard to be with Ferdinand... Gerhard had to give part of his share to his now ex-wife, which prompted the family to speculate that this affair was just one big ploy to get extra shares in the family business. But Ferdinand himself debunked this by never actually marrying Marlene, realizing that it was an untenable scenario given the powder keg of a family situation he was facing. So they basically just lived together, husband and wife in all but law having two children together, and remaining that way for twelve years, before the relationship came to an end. Still, in spite of his family's feelings towards him, Piech managed to hold on to his high-up technical engineering role at Audi. But it's not like he got that far out from under his family's thumb in the years following this quarrel, considering that Audi was a subsidiary of Volkswagen— It was an uphill battle, but Piech's goal was to take a relatively unexciting brand and liven it up, which is more or less what he did at Audi's facility in Ingolstadt, Bavaria. This is where I reveal why I bothered to bring Piech up in the first place. He was able to prove the viability of diesel engines in smaller cars, and even if someone else removed the blocks, you could still argue Piech built the Jenga tower that would eventually come tumbling down. To make a really long story at least somewhat shorter, Piech had developed a five-cylinder inline diesel engine for Mercedes-Benz, a piece of engineering he would then carry over into his time with Audi. He spent much of the 70s as Audi's manager of technological engineering, delivering the Audi 80, the Audi 100, which offered gasoline-fueled five-cylinder options in addition to the standard four-cylinder engines, and the much-heralded Audi Quattro which utilized a turbocharged version of the Audi inline 5. Piech was full of diesel-adjacent ideas by the 1980s, such that it wasn't exactly the craziest idea in the world to suggest diesel engines on mass-production passenger cars. And why not? You get a fuel with higher compression that, at least in theory, gets better fuel mileage than gasoline. Diesel engines also are built to be more durable thanks to the fuel's need for higher compression. However, the trade-off was a louder engine that uses more expensive fuel that didn't even promise greater performance. This is without even getting into the emissions issues, at a time where regulations were gradually becoming more severe. In the United States, this was largely in part to the development of the Clean Air Act between 1970 and 1975. In 1977, Congress passed an updated version of the Clean Air Act, which tightened standards on tailpipe emissions, including clampdowns on pollutants ranging from carbon monoxide to oxides of nitrogen. The first standards of 1975 saw NOx standards settle at 3.1 grams per mile for cars and light-duty trucks. Between 1977 and 1979, Congress took another pass at the Clean Air Act and made restrictions even tighter, with the NOx standard dropping to 2 grams per mile for cars and 2.3 grams per mile for light trucks. By 1988, the EPA had set their tailpipe standards at 1.7 grams per mile and 1.2 grams per mile for lighter trucks. And in 1994, the Clean Air Act became even more restrictive, allowing just 0.6 grams per mile for cars. Now, this is where advanced injection technology comes in. A turbocharger coupled with a fuel injector could essentially regulate how much fuel was being delivered to each cylinder, and the rate at which the fuel was being delivered. This new engine would utilize an onboard computer to control the whole shebang, as Piech had spent the better part of 11 years trying to perfect this model. With this engine, the fuel-air mixture could alter based on driving conditions. Audi was under the purview of Volkswagen, so when the turbocharged direct injection was finally finished, Volkswagen named it the TDI. Because acronyms are easier than coming up with some name that sounds like a discarded album of Judas Priest b-sides. I'm looking at you, Iron Duke. The TDI made its world debut as part of the Audi 100 at the Frankfurt Motor Show. It was presented as an engine that ran cleaner, with less fuel waste and emissions, and proving the viability of diesel engines outside their primary identity as the beating heart of service and utility vehicles. In this sense, everyone could have these engines at their disposal, with torque that compensated for road conditions. That the TDI was a success isn't all that surprising, but it became one of Pieck's defining triumphs, not just in Europe, but worldwide. By the 1990s, Piech was running the show over the entire Volkswagen Group, having been named Chairman of the Board of Management in 1993. But he wouldn't be running it all on his own. Virtually concurrently with Piech's ascendancy was the rise of a man by the name of Martin Winterkorn, who began his career at engineering and tech company Robert Bosch GmbH, where he was a specialist assistant in the research division in 1977, before transitioning to the substances and processes division in the 1980s. Before long, he was on Volkswagen's radar as a potential executive hire, eventually earning appointments to the head of quality assurance at Volkswagen in 1993, the same year Piech took over as chairman. According to a 2013 Forbes article titled, How Volkswagen Will Rule the World… Even though VW had some successes under their belt, Winterkorn's arrival came at an underwhelming time for the company. After buying out a Chrysler factory in New Stanton, Pennsylvania in 1978, Volkswagen had this notion that they were going to take the U.S. car market by storm, to the tune of no less than 5%. But that didn't happen, because the car they decided to lead with was the VW Rabbit, which couldn't touch the popularity of Japanese offerings of the same era the plant wasn't producing at the level it should have been and it would ultimately be closed a short two years after rolling its first jetta off the line during his rise through the ranks winterkorn became famous for micromanagement to the point where his stern method of running the show wasn't too far removed from Piers. By 2002, he was chairman of the board of management for Audi AG, a group within the wider Volkswagen group that includes the Audi, Volkswagen, and Seat brands. Or is it pronounced Seat? C- I'm so sorry if I'm getting this wrong. At the same time, Winterkorn had also been named a member of the larger Volkswagen group's board of management. Five years later, he was CEO of Volkswagen, and by 2014, he was the highest-paid CEO in all of Germany. Winterkorn was part of a team that oversaw the expansion of Volkswagen's global hierarchy, as their number included Oliver Schmidt, a German-born businessman who would become the lead emissions compliance manager for VW in the United States, James Robert Liang, a fellow engineer who served as leader of diesel competence while employed at the Volkswagen testing facility in Oxnard, California, and Rupert Stadler, the successive CEO of Audi AG. Stadler started out as head of the board for the Volkswagen Group in 1997 and head of group product planning in 2002. It seemed everyone under the employ of Piech and Winterkorn focused strictly on how to raise the international profile of the various brands under VW's purview. Yet, for all the possibilities for Winterkorn and Piech as a dream team in their own right, Vinterkorn was an idiosyncratic sort of guy, as detailed in the Forbes report. Quote, Shortly before Lamborghini was set to introduce the new Aventador super-luxury sports car in 2011, for instance, Vinterkorn took the 690-horsepower behemoth for a final test drive. After racing around the track at speeds close to 200 miles per hour, he told engineers the instrument panel on the $387,000 sports car had to go. He made them rip out the dashboard and redo it, resulting in a six-month launch delay. Wintercorn isn't apologetic. I have always been driven by the ambition to solve every problem I face—I don't know why I'm doing this voice—every problem I face, whether as a scientist, engineer, or entrepreneur, he says. The main things are dedication to the task at hand and consistency in performance. Before the launch of the redesigned VW Passat in 2011, Vinterkorn flew to Chattanooga, Tennessee seven times to inspect the vehicle's quality. When it was finally unveiled at a press event, Vinterkorn was furious after discovering a tiny paint flaw on one of the media test drive cars, according to one colleague. At the Frankfurt Motor Show in 2011, Winterkorn was caught on video poring over a new Hyundai model, griping to one of his engineers that the Koreans managed to cheaply design a steering column adjuster that made little noise, yet VW could not. End quote. In a sense, the work environment Pieck created was a demanding one, and in the process it created executives as hard-nosed and ambitious as Pieck himself, even if their visions differed. Vinterkorn seemed to understand the value of good engineering. For crying out loud, Vinterkorn did his doctoral program at the Max Planck Institute for Metal Research and Metal Physics. Or is it Max Planck? But basically, the man was no slouch. Yet the business of cars can be as challenging as their creation, because engineering and branding can often hold an equal measure of importance. After all, what's a great car without the reputation of being one? Under Piech, cars mattered, but being internationally respected as a top brand was arguably just as important, even if it meant trying to rebrand diesel as a clean fuel in the public consciousness. So that's what Volkswagen would set out to do. After all, it would help their reputation, and as long as the worldwide reputation was upheld, everything would be okay. So, what went wrong, exactly? Well, time to go back to the future. In spring 2014, when the West Virginia University team presented their findings at a Hyatt Regency in San Diego in front of some 200 attendees at a conference for oil industry representatives and auto manufacturers, the lid was blown wide open, and Dieselgate, as we'd come to know it, began to crystallize. You see... Alberto Ayala, a former West Virginia University faculty member and the deputy head of the California Air Resources Board, was in attendance when the team presented their report. California doesn't mess around when it comes to emissions, and CARB wanted answers from Volkswagen. CARB launched an investigation of their own, resulting in the conclusion that defeat devices were the culprit behind these test discrepancies. Before long, the Environmental Protection Agency was involved, and by that point, it was time for VW to start offering some explanations. On September eighteenth, two 2015, the Environmental Protection Agency issued a violation against VW and Audi, citing diesel vehicles from 2009 to 2015 with 2-liter engines. Computer World detailed the fiasco in a September twenty fourth, 2015 article titled, EPA details how VW software thwarted emission tests. The article notes, quote, According to the EPA's violation letter to Volkswagen dated September 18th, several models of Volkswagen vehicles built between 2009 and 2015 and Audi A3 models from 2010 to 2015 had software installed in the vehicle's electronic control module that could sense when an emissions test was being conducted. According to the EPA, the position of the steering wheel, vehicle speed, the duration of the engine's operation, and barometric pressure, all very specific indicators of an emissions test, acted as the activation switch for the defeat device. Essentially, the vehicle's electronic control module was set to clean mode for the remainder of the emissions test procedure. The switch was activated, and the vehicle ECM software ran a separate road calibration that reduced the effectiveness of the emission control system, specifically the selective catalytic reduction, or the lean NOx trap, the EPA said. Kirk Wennerstrom, marketing director of the Greenwich Concourse d'Elegance, a vintage and classic car show in Greenwich, Connecticut, explained that what VW did with its embedded software was akin to a sports jock hiring a gangly nerd just to pass SATs. End quote. The vehicles affected, according to the EPA index, included among 2 liter diesel vehicle models made between the model years 2009 and 2015, there was the Jetta, the Jetta Sport Wagon, the Beetle, the Beetle Convertible, the Audi A3, the Golf, the Golf Sport Wagon, and the Passat. Among three liter diesel vehicles from model years 2009 to 2016, there was the Volkswagen Touareg, the Porsche Cayenne, the Audi A6 Quattro, the Audi A7 Quattro, the Audi A8, the Audi A8L, the Audi Q5, and the Audi Q7. Needless to say, the government was pissed because these supposedly clean diesel TDI engines resulted in a $1,300 federal tax credit on each Jetta sedan or wagon sold, as Volkswagen of America announced in the summer of 2008. And yes, Volkswagen feigned ignorance by claiming it was all the result of a technical glitch. Later, VW claimed that it was all the doing of a handful of rogue employees. And, of course, they would argue that it's literally the first line of defense when you're facing the indefensible, an appeal to ignorance, argumentum ad ignorantium. You may have proven that our vehicles were in violation of the emission standard, but you can't prove we purposely intended to subvert the test. Therefore, we didn't purposely intend to subvert the test. That sort of argument. And it's ridiculous. It's it's like a reverse Occam's razor, which I'm sure has an actual term, although I'm too lazy to try and find it right now. Hickam's dictum, maybe? Either way, don't shave with Occam's razor if you don't want to get cut. On August 21, 2015, prior to the EPA's violation notice, an unnamed VW representative supposedly told EPA's Director of its Transportation and Air Quality Office that the company was guilty and had been cheating regulations. A California Air Resources Board official was also tipped off at the time, but this still wasn't an official admission to wrongdoing. That didn't come until September 25, 2015, with the resignation of Martin Vinterkorn. In his resignation, Vinterkorn wrote, quote, "...I am shocked by the events of the past few days. I am stunned that misconduct on such a scale was possible in the Volkswagen Group. As CEO, I accept responsibility for the irregularities. I am doing this in the interests of the company." Even though I am not aware of any wrongdoing on my part. End quote. Prior to his resignation, Vinterkorn apologized for the damage done to Volkswagen's reputation, writing, quote, I personally am deeply sorry that we have broken the trust of our customers and the public. End quote. Now, the problem with his statements, of course, is that Winterkorn reigned over the full duration of Volkswagen's emissions cheating, with his tenure beginning at the beginning of 2007 and ending in September 2015. Yet he only stepped down under pressure, believing the defeat devices to be the creation and implementation of only a few people within the company. This is troubling for another reason— A 2017 report by Der Spiegel revealed that Piech had learned of the emissions deception in February 2015 from Avi Primor, Israel's former ambassador to the EU and, later, to Germany. To his credit, Piech allegedly took the issue straight to Martin Winterkorn, who denied any wrongdoing. This prompted PH to continue to share the information, this time with the four members of the Volkswagen Supervisory Board's steering committee, including Lower Saxony Prime Minister Stefan Weil, Volkswagen Chairman of the General Works Council Bernd Osterloh, the former head of Volkswagen's metalworkers union Berthold Hubert, and Wolfgang Porsche. Yes, the cousin Piech never seemed to get along with, which illustrates just how serious this was. But Weil, whose state of Lower Saxony owns an 11.8% subscribed capital in Volkswagen and controls 20% of the company's voting rights, wrote off the emissions scandal as, quote, fake news. Case accusation of wrongdoing against the steering committee prompted Volkswagen to threaten a lawsuit against its now former VW CEO. Though the board would later claim to have only learned about the cheating in September 2015, Piech's accusations suggested a far-reaching cover-up. And it's at this point where I find it necessary to take another detour that maybe would have been more helpful to have learned earlier, but I think chronologically it makes more sense to place it here. Because you see, while this all was happening, Piech was locked in a power struggle with Vinterkorn. And it all started with a phone call on April 10th of 2015, months before Volkswagen admitted to any wrongdoing or before the story officially broke for Dieselgate. Basically, Piech reached out to Spiegel, the German publication responsible for detailing much of the Piech-Porsche turmoil detailed in this video. You see, it had gotten back to Piech that Spiegel planned on running a story on Piech's criticisms towards how Winterkorn was running the company, in addition to Piech's alleged plans to have his wife, Ursula, take the role of successor as the head of the supervisory board. The point of the call wasn't to get the story killed, but rather to offer a defense of his wife by noting that he wanted the right people to head the management and supervisory boards and that, quote, those people are not family members. They are also not my wife, end quote. But by the time Piech made the call, the story had already gone to printers. In making the call to reporters, Piech perhaps said too much. Piech told Spiegel, quote, I plan on distancing myself from Winterkorn, end quote. It spoke to his fundamental mistrust of the way in which Vintercorn operated. And so Spiegel Online ran an article concerning P.A.'s call, and it was printed out and placed in front of Vintercorn by that afternoon. Vintercorn is quoted as having said, What's with that? I can't even believe it. After having read the article, he was hurt that his mentor had so publicly expressed his lack of confidence in him. He was hurt, but he was also angry at the insult, and yet the situation could still have been salvaged if Piech simply offered a mitigating explanation that would lessen the implied insult. From Spiegel quote, What could be done? Several members of Volkswagen's supervisory board tried to disarm the statement by spinning it, but for this to work, they needed Piech's cooperation. On Saturday and Sunday, He received a lot of visitors, some of whom suggested he explain that the chairman of the supervisory board needs to keep his distance from the Volkswagen CEO in order to be able to provide sufficient oversight over him. This would render his previous statement self-evident, suggesting that distance was being used as a principle of corporate organization. But Piech didn't go along with it. He wanted to let his words mean what people had inferred, that Piech no longer trusted Vinterkorn. The media quickly began to speculate that CEO Winterkorn would soon be ousted, end quote. And so, an executive meeting of the supervisory board was held, with Weil, Hubert, Osterloh, and Wolfgang Porsche meeting in Piech's office. Winterkorn was also present, but he didn't actually attend the meeting, instead waiting outside for the results of their conference. The meeting itself basically involved the supervisory executives taking Ferdinand to task for how his statements undermine Winterkorn's authority, as well as that of the supervisory board, since the implication was that Volkswagen had a chairman that didn't give a damn about his company's board. To this end, Piech admitted that the board was right. His comments did undermine Winterkorn And in light of this, the board prepared a statement that would see Piech tacitly endorse Vinterkorn as their best possible CEO choice, along with a recommendation to extend Vinterkorn's contract through early 2016. Piech agreed to this on the condition that, upon the expiration of his own contract in April 2017, the board would recommend his re-election as chairman of the supervisory board. After lengthy discussions, this proposal was rejected which prompted Piech to go into full-on attack mode. According to Spiegel, quote, Piech was angry with his cousin. He believed Wolfgang Portia was scheming against his wife Ursula, and that he would prefer to push her out of the supervisory board completely. He accused Winterkorn of having similar ambitions. Whoever wanted to take a stand against Ursula, however, would have to deal with him. Pierre also accused Portia of having demanded his resignation. Portia said, "That's not true, Ferdinand. You asked me if I want that, and I just said at some point the issue will have to be addressed." End quote. By a two-thirds majority of the board, Pierre would face being voted out, like the world's highest stakes game of Survivor. But there are no hidden immunity idols in this one, and there's no lousy edge of extinction either. So he had little recourse but to resign, and his wife, Ursula, resigned from her position in the company along with him. On April 25th, 2015, Hubert issued a statement on behalf of the board. Quote, Ferdinand Pierre has made an enormous contribution to Volkswagen and the entire automobile industry. The developments of the last two weeks have, however, led to a loss of trust between the supervisory board chairman and the other members, which in recent days has proven to be impossible to resolve. End quote. Now, the reason I bring this up is because there's been speculation in the years since that Piech's claims of wrongdoing against the board for knowing about Dieselgate before it broke was revenge for his and his wife's ouster. But really, that's all it is speculation. Either way, Piech and his wife were muscled out as the rank and file stood with Vinterkorn, perhaps to their detriment. At the height of the scandal in 2015, VW of America's CEO, Michael Horn, didn't mince words, admitting at a press conference for the new Passat, quote, We've totally screwed up, end quote. Presumably he wasn't talking about the Passat. In the same speech, Horn got specific, saying, quote, our company was dishonest with the EPA and the California Air Resources Board. And with all of you. End quote. Yet the cover-up allegations only grew from there. German publication Süddeutsche Zeitung reported that warnings about illegal activities had been ignored as far back as 2011. Although VW had announced plans in 2015 to fix all the affected vehicles, it was going to be a pretty big ask considering the sheer number of affected cars across their brands. The Defeat Systems affected some 5 million VW cars, 2.1 million Audis, 1.2 million Skodas, and countless other commercial vehicles, adding up to roughly 11 million cars being affected worldwide between 2009 and 2015. Official publicly released documents pertaining to the case painted a clearer picture of the road ahead for Volkswagen. On November 2, 2015, a joint investigation between the EPA, CARB, and Environment Canada resulted in the issuing of a second violation over 2014 to 2016 Volkswagen, Audi, and Porsche 3 liter diesel vehicles, which were found to emit up to nine times more pollution than allowed. By January 4, 2016, the American Justice Department filed a lawsuit against Volkswagen to the tune of 46 billion billion dollars for their flagrant disregard for anti-pollution laws. 2016 would see executives begin to turn against the company to save their own skins, beginning with the man who sought to implement the launch of clean diesel vehicles in the United States back in 2008, the leader of diesel competence himself, Mr. James Robert Liang. In the midst of all this, by April 2016, Pierre had repeated his accusations against the VW Supervisory Board and Martin Winterkorn to VW's law firm Jones Day, as well as to the public prosecutor investigating the scandal. However, no verbatim record of his testimony transcripts are said to exist. The only thing known is that he spoke to them. On September 9th, 2016... Liang pleaded guilty to one count of conspiracy to defraud the U.S., to commit wire fraud, and to violate the Clean Air Act. According to official documents by the Department of Justice's Office of Public Affairs, Liang admitted that he and his co-conspirators within Volkswagen began designing an EA-189 diesel engine in roughly 2006. They had every intention of later selling this engine in the United States, but the EA-189 had the cheat software to make adequate power without the typically higher diesel emissions readings. Liang's testimony flew in the face of Volkswagen's defense that it was just a bunch of rogue, low-level employees who banded together to perpetrate this fraud. If anything, the implication was that this scandal went all the way to the top. A year later, Liang would be sentenced to 40 months in prison and a $200,000 fine, which in the corporate world probably doesn't sound like much, considering the gravity of the offense towards the environment. But it's more than anybody from GM got for the whole ignition switch debacle. Regardless, this turnaround made things significantly worse for Volkswagen. Let's go into timeline mode, courtesy of Canadian advocacy organization environmental defense. On October twenty fifth, 2016, the first partial settlement was reached between the U.S. and Volkswagen regarding the two-liter diesel engines, with Volkswagen being forced to pay $4.7 billion that would then be used to promote pollution reduction policies and programs, in addition to implementing infrastructure for the production and maintenance of zero-emission vehicles. The deal also called for $10 billion to be used to buy back or repair roughly 475,000 cars affected between 2009 and 2015. Later, on December twentieth, 2016, a second partial settlement was reached over the 3-liter diesel engines, as Volkswagen had to pay an additional $225 million to fund the EPA's pollution prevention work. It all culminated in the second big arrest in the Dieselgate case. Remember Oliver Schmidt, the lead emissions compliance manager for VW in the United States? Well, during a stopover on his way back to Germany from his Christmas holiday in the U.S. on January 7, 2017, Schmidt was apprehended in the men's room at Miami International Airport and arrested on federal conspiracy charges. After being extradited to Detroit, Schmidt was denied bail and subsequently held in custody for months on the premise that he would flee the jurisdiction if he were to be released. Since, from what I could find, Germany usually doesn't allow its own citizens to be extradited to other countries. Although I'm sure someone in the comments will correct me if I'm wrong, and if I am wrong, I apologize. But this appears to be how five of the six VW executives facing federal conspiracy charges were able to avoid capture once things really hit the fan. So it stood to reason that no amount of turning over passports or agreeing to home surveillance would be enough to ensure Schmidt stayed put. As Assistant U.S. Attorney Ben Singer argued in court, The simple fact is that Mr. Schmidt has every reason in the world to go back to Germany under these circumstances, and if he goes back, he's never coming back. That's it. End quote. Not that this prevented Schmidt's attorneys from arguing that his willingness to even go on holiday in the U.S., knowing how heated the situation was for VW, showed he wouldn't be a flight risk. Hey, he loved the U.S., they said. Hell, he and his wife got married on the showroom floor of a Florida Volkswagen dealership, for crying out loud. What's more American than that? And after all, how can you charge my client with conspiracy when the entire criminal enterprise started eight whole years before he supposedly became a part of it? Which is a silly enough argument on its own. It'd be like one of the senators responsible for assassinating Julius Caesar trying to claim innocence by saying they were the eighth stab or something. It's like, I wasn't even the one that stabbed him in the junk. Like, how could you gamble? (laughs) Schmidt even wrote a letter to the presiding judge in his case claiming to have felt, quote, Misused by my own company in the diesel scandal. End quote. But this wasn't enough. Schmidt was eventually indicted by U.S. federal authorities for conspiracy to defraud the U.S. government via wire fraud, in addition to violation of the Clean Air Act. Hope for the company deteriorated on January 11, 2017, when VW pleaded guilty to three felony counts related to their attempts to defraud the U.S. government, the EPA, and their consumers. Ultimately, VW was ordered to pay fines totaling $2.8 billion, along with an additional $1.5 billion in fines regarding civil offenses. As a condition of this arrangement, Volkswagen was prohibited from retracting any admission of guilt in the Dieselgate scandal if they were prosecuted in other jurisdictions such as Canada. Not that any of these threats really stopped Volkswagen anyway, as they continued to sell non compliant cars in Canada well into 2017, albeit with the permission of the Canadian government that was contingent upon VW providing a software fix, which they did, but then VW got sued anyway when, on April 1st, 2017, class-action lawsuits were approved in Ontario and Quebec. This was no April Fool's Day prank, as the lawsuit allowed nearly 105,000 consumers who bought affected cars to sue VW to the tune of $2.1 billion Canadian. Over the summer of 2017, Canadian environmental organizations petitioned the Ministry of Environment and Climate Change to investigate four criminal allegations against Volkswagen. However, the Canadian government refused these requests, stating that there was already an ongoing investigation led by Environment and Climate Change Canada, or the ECCC. However, the ECCC also refused to provide the progress and action reports required every 90 days under the Canadian Environmental Protection Act, which prompted Environmental Defense Canada and the Canadian Physicians for the Environment to ramp up their campaign against the Canadian federal government. By September, Ontario would finally take action, staging a raid raid on VW headquarters on charges of failing to adhere to admissions standards. Now, this brings us to another Judgment Day, when one of the key figures in the Dieselgate cover-up was sentenced for his involvement. On December 6, 2017... Oliver Schmidt was sentenced to seven years in prison for his role in covering up the whole Dieselgate scandal, destroying documents and misleading investigators, you know, all that corporate espionage stuff. In his sentencing, U.S. District Judge Sean Cox addressed Schmidt directly, stating, quote, I'm sure, based upon common sense, that you viewed this cover-up as an opportunity to shine, to climb the corporate ladder at VW. Your goal was to impress senior management. End quote. He would go on to add, quote, without trust in corporate America, the economy can't function. End quote. For his part, Schmidt owned up to his mistakes in a statement to the court. Schmidt declared, quote, For the disruption of my life, I only have myself to blame. I accept the responsibility for the wrong I committed. End quote. It was a rare show of humility from anyone at VW, which had engaged in a fair amount of buck passing in an attempt to prevent the hemorrhaging of their public image. But sometimes you can't outrun any amount of bad press. Hell, sometimes it helps to just take ownership of the things you've done, in the hopes that people might one day be able to understand why you did them, as well as how you were able to justify them to yourself as necessary. With several of the Dieselgate All-Stars doing prison time, you'd think this would be the end of it. The beginning of the rebuilding period for Volkswagen. Out of the frying pan and onto the plate, where things might finally cool down. Onward to the aftermath and all that. But the thing about aftermaths is that they're still a part of the story. Which means the story isn't exactly done. By January 30th, 2018, VW was facing new allegations. This time, they were accused of animal testing. It came to light that a research group funded by VW, BMW, and Daimler was testing diesel exhaust on monkeys, because now we're getting into the territory of cartoonish supervillainy. According to an article by Prashant S. Rao and Melissa Eddy from the New York Times titled Volkswagen Vows to End Experiments on Animals, Volkswagen even admitted to it, writing a letter to the German branch of PETA to reassure the organization that they would no longer finance research examining the effects of diesel exhaust on the health of animals, particularly the ten macaque monkeys who were exposed to exhaust in sealed chambers. Even then, VW tried to soften the blow by saying that they technically didn't break any local laws in carrying out the tests. Ultimately, PETA was satisfied by Volkswagen's pledge to end animal testing, and called on other automakers to do the same. So at least there's a sense that some lesson was learned here, not that this meant the end of Volkswagen's woes. On May 3rd, 2018, the long arm of the law finally grabbed Martin Winterkorn by his lapels and gave him a good shake, when he was charged with fraud and conspiracy in the U.S., Even if his argument was that it was just a bunch of rogue engineers at VW, it's pretty hard to imagine that the right hand didn't know what the left one was doing all that time. Someone high up the chain had to be held to account, and Winterkorn wouldn't be the last caught in the cow-catcher of justice. Just one month later, on June 18th, 2018, Audi CEO Rupert Stadler was arrested in Germany for his part in the scandal. According to prosecutors, Stadler likely knew about the emissions cheating, but took no action to stop the illegal practice or the sale of these compromised vehicles. In all, it was a pretty bad month for Volkswagen, as they were additionally fined 1 billion euros in Germany for failing to prevent illegal interference with their emissions cheats. After his arrest, Rupert Stadler was essentially forced out of Volkswagen Group by the supervisory boards of both Volkswagen and Audi putting an end to his tenure as CEO, and terminating his standing contracts. On April 5th, 2019, Europe's antitrust regulators officially charged VW, BMW, and Daimler with emissions collusion for allegedly planning to delay the rollout of clean emission technology. I guess misery loves company, what can I say? And on that subject, on April 15th, 2019... The German government formally charged Martin Winterkorn and four other VW managers with fraud, a charge that would be levied against Rupert Stadler and three VW group engineers just a few months later, on July 30th, 2019. And yet... As July came to a close, actual faith in low-emissions vehicles appeared to be at an all-time low in the country in general, with the biggest sales growth occurring among gas-guzzling SUVs and all-terrain vehicles, according to German agency Dena. Meanwhile, Clean Energy Wire's timeline on the after-effects notes both the citywide bans as well as the economic effects of being wrapped up in a scandal. Clean Energy Report writes, The government of the federal state of Berlin decides to ban older diesel cars from eight roads in the city and create dozens of zones with a 30-kilometer-per-hour speed limit, according to public broadcaster RBB24. The diesel bans will come into force in September on roads with a total length of just under 3 kilometers. Residents, delivery services, mobile nursing services, and tradespeople will be exempt from the ban. Following a string of profit warnings... Daimler reports its first loss in years, triggered by legal risks related to the Dieselgate scandal. End quote. But this still wouldn't be the most significant loss of the next 30-day period in the history of Volkswagen. On August 25, 2019, while out at dinner with his wife in Rosenheim in Germany's Upper Bavaria region, Ferdinand Piech collapsed suddenly. Despite being quickly taken to the hospital, Piech did not reawaken. He was pronounced dead at the age of 82. His CNBC obituary details how Piech's legacy was impacted by the Dieselgate scandal, an obituary which included comments from Peter Wells of the Cardiff Business School in Wales. While prosecutors haven't revealed any direct links between Piech and what has come to be called Dieselgate, the scandal will forever stain all great things he accomplished, said Eric Schiffer, chairman of Reputation Management Consultants. Perhaps, but it won't wipe out Piech's legacy entirely, said Wells, suggesting that Piech was perhaps more influential a man than anyone else in the industry since Henry Ford. Piech sought to distance himself from the diesel scandal, pointing fingers at other managers, including his cousin Wolfgang Porsche, who also sat on the supervisory board. That only added to the bad blood that led him to retire in May 2015, a month after the board decided to renew Vinterkorn's contract, the two men then having had a fierce falling out. Piech remained active even after leaving Volkswagen, and... According to a statement by his wife Ursula, he was on his way to an industry conference when he died, suddenly and unexpectedly. Even if Piech had no direct involvement in the emissions debacle, former Chrysler president Bob Lutz eulogized Piech in a Road and Track article titled The Complicated Legacy of Ferdinand Piech in which he drew a correlation between the work environment fostered by Piech and the mentality that cheating emissions was a necessary evil in the name of profits and productivity. Some of this was mentioned earlier in this video, but it feels prudent to share the full quote now. As Lutz stated, "...then there's the VW scandal, still fresh in all our minds." How could a global corporation possibly commit such a crass, willful criminal act? When asked at the time, I opined that it was a direct result of the corporate culture created and nurtured by Piech. The mantra, top to bottom, was, You will get it done, and if you can't, you will be replaced by someone who can. Piech and his colleagues were determined to use clean diesel as their way into American hearts and garages but they were unwilling to include what they saw as crippling emissions control equipment. Thus, the adoption of cheater software, which reliably showed legal emissions levels in testing, but went offline in real-world driving. How could sensible engineers, most of them honest, condone and conceal such a fraud? The answer lies in the atmosphere of fear and reprisal, hallmarks of any organization led by Piech. Once, at an auto show, I congratulated Pierre on the superb panel fits of his new cars. He told me, You want this at Chrysler? Here's how it's done. Call everyone who is part of Body Precision into your office. Tell them you want 3 millimeter body gaps in 6 weeks or they're all fired. I told him this was, <clears throat> culturally difficult in the U.S. He replied, essentially, that I was too weak to get what I needed from my company at the time i was president and chief operating officer of the chrysler corporation but i'm sure piech regarded me as just another nice well-educated executive who couldn't get the job done piech got the job done End quote. perhaps that's how piech would prefer to be remembered as a man who got things done in the auto industry it's not often about whether or not you're a good person as in any industry Success in one's career is often measured by their accomplishments, their shortcomings, and their failures. Piech had his failures, but his successes arguably outweighed them on the scale. Then again, I suppose one can make an argument with regard to the damage something like Dieselgate does to a legacy. Regardless, the year would come to an ignominious end when, on September 24th, 2019, Martin Winterkorn faced new indictments in Germany— as prosecutors charged him with stock market manipulation alongside Volkswagen Supervisory Board Chairman Hans-Dieter Poch and Chief Executive Herbert Diess. And the case continues into 2020, as six additional Volkswagen managers were charged for Dieselgate-related fraud in Braunschweig, Germany, on January 14th. So, I guess this brings us to the aftermath, such as it is. I mean, realistically, the story is still ongoing. Closure is illusory, because it's still shaping the auto industry at a worldwide level. But even if it weren't, again, closure is illusory. Dieselgate changed the way some people view cars. Distrust in truly green vehicles became standard in the aftermath. How could you really know another diesel gate isn't around the corner? How do you know there isn't some hidden software you're unaware of, polluting the environment as you go about your daily errands, your commute to work? We're in an age where plenty of people leave their cars idling, or drive unnecessarily, either for leisure or simplicity's sake. And yet, this has always been the case, hasn't it? cash for clunkers was an attempt to incentivize people to drive green but it didn't exactly work the way the government intended or maybe it did but the way they intended was just destined to fail either way cars have always been something of an enemy to the environment albeit far from the only one I think Dieselgate had the net harm of distracting from that effect because it refocused attention on cars as the prime catalyst in harmful environmental effects. When everything from coal mining to lead smelting to other means of manufacturing and production do significant amounts of damage to the environment worldwide, I don't really know what the answer is. Electric cars in Europe are expected to triple by 2021, with the goal of eventually having most, if not all, cars on the road be environmentally friendly. But we've never come to this point in history before with cars. Even if it's a success in Europe, it's almost like a high school protest walkout. It doesn't work unless everybody agrees to go along with it. Maybe the legacy of Dieselgate will not be in how it negatively impacted Volkswagen's global reputation, since they aren't exactly dead right now, you know? And plenty of people still buy their cars, even knowing the history. No, perhaps the biggest part of Dieselgate's legacy will be in how it stimulated a global conversation on the effects of air pollution. That sounds pretentious as hell, But I feel there's something to the idea that a scandal, even in the age where one can flip a coin on what sticks and what falls away in the wake of the next big headline, can influence change.